so good. All right. Well, again, welcome. So glad you're with us. My name is Matt, and I'm one of the pastors. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I'm glad that you're here and part of this rowdy bunch today. <laughs> let's, uh, let's pray together as we prepare to jump into God's Word, shall we? <clears throat> Father, we love you, and we are grateful for another Sunday together as a church family. Thank you for the joy that is in this room as we come together to celebrate you. Thank you for the joy of baptism and seeing Carrie's story up front and how you're at work in her life. God, thank you for all the things you are doing in Benicia, in Vallejo, in the Bay Area. We're just so glad to be a part of it. So thank you, God, for uh, allowing us to be a part of your work. And now, Lord, we uh, turn our attention to your word, and we need your help. We need your help, Lord, to understand it. We need your spirit to guide us and uh, help us understand what we read to help us apply it to our lives. And so, Lord, as we pray every week, we just pray for your help as we uh, study your word together. God, would you be glorified here today? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, hey, go ahead and turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse Six, And if you don't have a Bible, no problem. There are some on the seats in front of you. So feel free to grab one of those and open it up. We're not going to have the main text on the screen. And so you'll need to, again, follow along in a hard copy or on your phone or some sort of device so you can follow along in your version of God's Word. First Peter chapter 5, verse 6. And you'll notice we're at the very end of the book of First Peter. Chapter 5 is the last chapter, and so we're going to cover the last section here together where, you know, for a few months as a church family, we've just been walking through the book of 1 Peter little by little. This series we've called Life in Exile is now coming to a close. And while you uh, are finding that place in the text, I just want to say again how great it was to hear uh, last week from Pastor Kyle as he was preaching and the week before from Pastor Lee. As he was preaching, I'm just so glad to work with both of them. They are uh, gifts to our church, and I hope that you appreciate, again, hearing them teach God's Word. It was just clear that they have a passion for the Lord and for His Word and a love for you, a love for this church. So I'm so grateful for them, but now you are stuck with me again. So here we go. Um, if you grew up in the church in the 90s, maybe the early 2000s, or you were raising kids around that time, and you were a part of the greater Christian subculture, then you probably remember, like me, the phenomenon that was Veggie Tales. <laughs> come on, come on. Veggie Tales, if you don't know, it was this animated video series that was teaching kids the Bible, the stories and themes of the Bible, by using talking and singing vegetables. I know, it's like, what can we do to reach the next generation? I got it. Talking vegetable video series, let's do it. And they did. And you remember characters like Larry the Cucumber, Bob the Tomato, Junior Asparagus, right? Ringing some bells here? Yeah. And they would sing and teach Bible stories to kids. And one of their songs, I always remember, it was called God is Bigger Than the Boogeyman. Remember that one? We're going to have Darren and the worship team come back up. We're going to fire it up again and sing that one. Uh, just kidding. We're not going to do that. But that song, the context for that episode was fear. And this little 
vegetable. This little junior asparagus was going to bed and he was worried about monsters and, and various things. And these two older vegetables, Larry the cucumber, Bob the tomato, come into his room. We don't know how they got into his room or why the, his parents let them in his room, but they were in his room all of a sudden and they were singing this song called God is Bigger Than the Boogeyman. And the point of the song was to remind Junior Asparagus and to remind us that God is bigger than whatever he's afraid of. He's afraid of the boogeyman, Godzilla, the monsters on TV. The song goes, whatever it is that you're afraid of, God is bigger than that. And so you can go to sleep, you can rest knowing that this big, mighty God is looking out for you and cares for you. That's a true statement. It's really a true song and a great lesson to teach kids. But as we grow older, we realize that fear and worry is not just something that kids deal with, right? And actually, as we grow older, maybe you've experienced that fear and anxiety and worry gets worse, gets harder, because as adults, we realize how fragile life can feel. We deal with loss and death and illness, tragedy, debt, and broken relationships, and broken families, and regrets in our past, and an uncertain future, right? There's so many things that can cause us to worry, and this isn't just always about yourself and your own life, but maybe for your kids, maybe for your parents, maybe for your family members. This uncertain future can cause anxiety, and so Peter here at the end of his letter in the first century, begins his closing comments by speaking to his audience's fears and reminding them of some things in light of that. So you see that in the text in verse 6. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. So you see Peter telling his first century audience, they're living in exile, right? Because of their commitment to follow Jesus, they are now outsiders in their communities. They're looked at kind of funny by their neighbors. There's some subtle exclusion and hostility because as Christians, they're kind of weird. And they're not like the rest of the Greco-Roman world. And because of this, they're misunderstood. There's strained relationships, possibly uh, legal issues they're facing, possibly financial concerns, possibly threats to their well-being because they're following Jesus in a hostile environment. And so there's plenty that would make them or could make them afraid. And so Peter knows this, and he's going to speak to that. And he says in verse 6, you see, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. And then verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him. Okay, so the fear and the worry and the anxieties of life that we talked about to start this morning, Peter is saying, hey, give that over to God. Cast that upon him. Throw that his way. Let him carry it. And as we read these opening verses, it's natural maybe to see these as two separate teachings, like humble yourself before God, verse 6, verse 7, 
cast all your anxieties upon him. We see, okay, those are kind of separate things. But in the Greek, the phrases are actually connected. And the phrase that you see in verse 7, where it says, cast all your anxieties on him, that phrase is not this independent clause, this independent command. It's actually modifying the teaching to humble yourself before God. And so it's almost as if Peter is saying, humble yourself before God by casting all your anxieties upon him. And so think about that connection. He's saying our fears, excuse me, if we're giving our fears and our anxieties to God, that is an act of humility. That's what he's saying. And so the reverse is true. If we hold on to our fears and we hold on to our anxieties and choose to deal with them ourselves, that is an act of pride. And it's interesting for us to see this because we don't usually think about fear and worry and anxiety as a pride issue, do we? We don't usually categorize it that way. And yet, that seems to be what this text is doing. And so let's think about that. If you get down to the bottom of worry, what is it that's going on in your heart when you're worrying? It's because, well, there's something that you maybe don't want to happen that you're afraid might happen. Or there's something good that you really want to happen in your life and you worry because it might not happen. Right? And so when you're worrying, it's because your preferred picture of the future is threatened. Right? Your preferred picture of the future is threatened, and so you worry. And so essentially this is saying, I know what the future needs to look like. I know what is best for me and what is best for the world, and I am anxious that things aren't going to work out the way I know they should. I'm anxious that God's not going to get it right in line with my plan. I mean, really, if we boil it down, that's what's going on in our hearts. And so, Peter's solution to fear and anxiety says, hey, cast your anxiety upon him. Give your fears over to him. And so he's saying, have enough humility to recognize that God's plans are better than your plans. I know that's a simple statement, terribly hard to live that out often, isn't it? And yet, that's what he's telling us to do. Recognize that God's plans are better than your plans. And so take your heavy backpack of worries that you're walking in the door with and set it down on the kitchen table. Set it down on the counter. It's not your weight to carry anymore. Sounds a lot like verse in Philippians chapter 4. Maybe you're familiar with it. Verse 6 says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So don't be anxious. Instead, take your requests, your concerns, your fears, bring them to the Lord in prayer, and let him handle the results. You ever been on a trip where you're traveling with a lot of luggage? multiple bags you get to the airport with. Maybe you're with family members or kids and your kids have multiple bags of their own. And so your family of three has like 27 bags that you're trying to lug into the airport. And what do you, when you do that, right, what do you do? You go to the counter with your airline and you check your bags. 
You say, I'm not going to try and carry all 27 of my family's bags up to the gate. How crazy would that be to try and take all your luggage, big suitcases, multiple suitcases per person, say, nope, I got this. No thanks. Check out, people. I'm going to take these bags and carry them through security and somehow get out to my gate and I'll load them on the plane myself. Don't worry, I got it. No, we wouldn't do that. And if you saw someone doing that, you'd probably go and consult them and pray for them and say, are you okay? Right? Well, instead, what do we do? We take them to the counter and we, we check those bags. We say, these bags are no longer my problem. Right? You people at Southwest Airlines, you're going to figure out how to get these bags onto the plane. Once I check them, once I drop them off, I'm not worried about it anymore. Right? I can have free hands, a little bit lighter, walking through the airport. Even though I packed half the house for my family, most of it is now in someone else's hands, and you're freed up, right? This is what it's supposed to be like with God. Give him the baggage that you're carrying around with you of fear. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Ah, pastor man, I see a hole in your illustration. I see where this breaks down that you might not have seen. See, when you drop your checked bags off with the airline, what happens sometimes? They lose your luggage. Sometimes you can't just drop off your bags carefree because you've had a bag that's been lost before. And there's some worry there. Are they going to get it right? Are they going to get my bags to my destination? Now, if you're thinking that this morning, you're right, that does happen with airlines. But the good news is that God is infinitely stronger and wiser than Southwest Airlines or Delta Airlines or whoever you might choose to fly with. And so Peter is going to actually show us that, hey, God's not going to lose your luggage. He doesn't operate that way. And so look at the text and actually how he does this, two different ways. First in verse 6, he says, hey, God is mighty. God is strong, right? Verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Peter is saying, remember God's power. Remember what Veggie Tales taught you, that God is bigger. He's bigger than whatever it is that you're afraid of. And this language we see really throughout the Old Testament, the mighty hand of God, especially in connection to the story of the Exodus, when God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt, and he showed his power over the, the strongest ruler of the day, Pharaoh. He conquered him and brought his people to freedom and showed his strength over against all human powers, showing that there's nothing too difficult for God. There's no need that is too great for God. There's no situation too dire or too far gone for God. Reminds me of Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Amen. I will do all that I please. There's nothing that will stand in the way of God accomplishing his purposes and plans. Saying, remember the mighty hand of God. He's not going to lose your luggage. 
He's actually going to vindicate you. It says he will lift you up in due time. That's not necessarily a promise of relief or uh, situation and circumstances changing for the better, maybe even in your lifetime. But it's this eternal perspective that you are safe and secure in God's plan. Both now and forever, God is mighty and in control. You can rest. He reminds us not just of God's power and strength, but you see in the text something else in verse Seven, he actually shows us that God cares for you. Verse seven, cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Well, because he cares for you. What a simple truth. What a simple, beautiful truth. God cares for you. God loves you. God is working for good in your life. And so God sees the anxiety and the fear and the heavy luggage and baggage that you're carrying around and he comes alongside and he says, hey, why don't you let me carry that? I don't want you to be burdened with it anymore. Like Kyle mentioned last week, Jesus is our good shepherd. He cares for us. He loves us. He knows what we need. He's watching out for us. He knows the number of hairs on our head or the number of hairs in our ears if there's no more hair on our heads. He knows. <laughs> and he cares. Can you imagine the level of detail and attention that's required to know the hair count for each of us? It's incredible. And it's sometimes hard for me to grasp. It's easier for me, honestly, for being talking frankly here, it's easier for me to recognize the power and the strength and the might of God. Sometimes harder for me to believe that he cares for me. He's strong and mighty. He created the universe, of course. But he loves me. He knows me. Sometimes that's a little harder to wrap my head around. <clears throat> now, with this, imagine how you would feel if maybe your kids came home, or your grandkids came to your house one day after school, and they were just wringing their hands. They were just visibly upset, worried about something. And you asked them, hey, what? What's bothering you? What's wrong? What happened? And they say to you, I'm just, I don't know if you're going to feed me the rest of the month. I, just, I don't know if you're going to cook for me. I don't know if you're going to prepare food, if I'm going to eat again, and I'm worried about it. And so I've been trying to take things into my own hands. I've been taking some cooking lessons on the side. You can imagine like a five-year-old, six-year-old, eight-year-old. I've been trying to cook, and I figure out how to learn the oven. Don't worry. I know what I'm doing. And I'm thinking I'm going to you know, find a way to get to the store, maybe bring a pizza home, maybe going to cook it, because I, I don't know if you're going to take care of it, so I need to take care of it. Or maybe, you know, Joe's family, I think they might be eating sometime this month, and so I'm going to call over there. Maybe they'll give me some food. I just don't know if you're going to handle it. What would you say to them? You'd say, hey, 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 why don't you let me worry about that, especially the oven part? Why don't you let me figure that out? I'm your mom. I'm your dad. I care for you. I want to feed you most of the time, right? <laughs> I want to take care of you, and I'm going to, so just don't worry about that. You go do your homework, or go play with your friends, or go clean your room, or do something else. Let me figure that out. That's what God's saying to us. He's mighty, and he cares for us, and he's not going to lose our luggage. And so Peter's saying, hey, you can cast your anxieties, your fears, whatever it is you're going through, give that to the Lord and trust him and rest in him. 
And that's not like a one-time deal, you know, where you do it once when you become a Christian and then you're like, sweet, I never have to go through that process again. No, I think as we walk with the Lord, it's this continual process of giving things over to the Lord because fears come up basically daily. And we need to say, Lord, I need you to carry this for me. Lord, I need you. And so he reminds us to be humble and to trust the Lord. But he doesn't stop there. There's actually a lot more that he has to say as he closes the book. And notice how he continues in verse 8. He says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So he's saying, hey, although God is sovereign and in control, that doesn't mean that you just sit back and have nothing to do and no decisions to make and no actions to take. No, he says what? Rather, verse 8, be alert. Pay attention. Be of sober mind. Why? And here he mentions a reason that he hasn't brought up before in the book of 1 Peter. He says, you have an enemy. The devil looking to destroy you. Now, let's be honest, that's not an area of doctrine or theology that we often talk about today. The doctrine of Satan, the doctrine of demons. That's an area we don't hear a ton about. And so briefly, we should recognize that the scriptures do teach that there are unseen spiritual beings. Some of them serve God. Some of them do not. And the ones that do not actually stand opposed to God and his work and his people and seek to corrupt God's good world. And so he's saying the devil, here your enemy, or elsewhere in scripture is referred to as the accuser or the adversary, the one who stands against you, works to thwart what God wants to do in you and in the world. And here he's seeking to devour or, or destroy you wants to harm you. Now, there's usually two extremes that we go to on this topic. One extreme is to see the devil and demonic forces in everything. Like, I burnt my toast this morning. The devil's out to get me, right? Not necessarily, okay? But one extreme, devil's in everything. And then the other extreme is the devil's in nothing, doesn't exist, isn't real. And that's much more common today in the Western world. These, these unseen spiritual realities, uh, we're often led to believe that they aren't there. They don't exist. Nothing to take notice of. But the truth is somewhere between those two extremes, because the scriptures do remind us that there is a devil, that there is an enemy that we have, and there are demonic forces at work in the world. Sometimes these attacks, the work of the enemy is really visible, and we think of what the first century Christians maybe were enduring, suffering, persecution, maybe violence against them, something that the enemy would be stirring up and sending their way. In verse 9, Peter says, hey, so you know, you Christians in Asia Minor that I'm writing to, you're not the only ones experiencing this sort of hostility, this sort of difficulty. You're not alone in this. This is something that believers throughout the world are facing. So he tells his audience then and us now to be alert, 
to be aware of these realities so that we can stand firm in the faith and not be deceived, not be destroyed by the enemy. And sometimes it's hard to be alert to these things. I actually remember a time in my life where I wasn't very alert, not necessarily to spiritual realities, but this story came up on the golf course. I was golfing back in high school with my best friend, Wade. He was and is way better than me at golf. We were walking down the fairway on this beautiful day, and my second shot was far shorter than, or excuse me, my first shot was far shorter than his. And so I reached my ball first, and I hit my second shot down the fairway a little bit, but it didn't really go where I wanted it to go. I completely shanked it, as I often do in the world of golf. And I was walking then after my second shot, just up the fairway. Didn't have a golf cart, unfortunately, so we were just walking, had my clubs on my back, sipping a Gatorade, head down, walking, thinking to my high school self about video games or Cheez-Its or girls or I don't know what. I was walking and just thinking in my own little world, not paying attention at all to what was going on around me. When suddenly I hear the clank of a golf club striking a golf ball inches away from my face, and I feel the whoosh of the golf ball right in front of my face, blowing by me, going towards the green. And I look up, and I see there my friend Wade in his finished swing pose, not less than a foot from my face. I was like, I almost just died. I, I, almost, just, I almost had a golf club just strike me in the head, or a golf ball hit me right in the skull. I was this close. Why? I wasn't paying attention. Right? I just had my head down, sipping my Gatorade, thinking about Cheez-Its and girls and video games in my high school world, and I wasn't paying attention to what was going on around me, and there was actually some danger that I needed to be aware of. And I think sometimes we do this in our spiritual lives as well. Just kind of put our head down, not really looking around at what's going on. It's kind of in our own little world, not aware of anything bigger at work in the world or in life. And the idea is not that we need to be afraid and constantly fearing for our safety because Peter's saying, hey, don't be afraid. You can trust God. God's bigger than anything out there that you're going to face. So it's not that you need to walk around being afraid, but pay attention. Just, just pay attention. Be, be alert that there are things that are going to come your way that you're going to need to learn to navigate. And while in the first century, much of this opposition from the enemy spiritually would be, maybe again, more visible, persecution, suffering, uh, more outward signs of this, often today the work of the enemy is unseen. And frankly, the enemy would rather convince you that he doesn't exist at all. And so often we are kept in the dark, or the enemy works to maybe deceive us, to lead us away from the truth, to make us think that we're self-sufficient, to make us think that we don't need Jesus. And if we're not alert, standing firm in the faith, planted firm in the scriptures, and firm in community, if we're not discerning about the messages that we often hear in the world, then it's possible to be deceived and led Astray. I mean, just think about the number of messages that come our way every day. As we turn on the radio, as we watch movies, as we read books, as we talk to people, we're constantly getting messages about what is valuable, what is true, 
what is good and important in the world. And not all those messages are bad, but some of them are contrary to what the scriptures say. Some of them are contrary to what God says. And so we have to be really thoughtful. Are we alert and, and discerning what we're hearing, what we're feeling, what we're being told from different sources? And are we matching it up and seeing how it compares to the word of God? And again, that's not just something that we do in isolation because we're vulnerable when we're isolated. Rather, it's something that together we work through. Together, we talk through this. That's why we have small groups. That's why we meet weekly. And that's why we don't have church just like once a month or a couple times a year because we regularly need to come together, worship, remember what is true from God's word, encourage one another. And so Peter's saying, hey, be alert. Be alert. But it doesn't end here either. So it's not just, hey, be humble and trust God. And it's not just, hey, be alert. He brings us back to the grace of God and the power of God in verse 10. You see it there. It says, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. So Peter comes back to God's grace. It actually gives us some perspective. You notice he says we're called to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered how long? A little while. So it gives us some perspective. Exile is not the end of the story. Exile is not the longest part of the story. Actually, there's an eternity of glory in Christ with God that we have to look forward to. And so it helps us see what we're facing now as temporary, as not the biggest part of the story. It's simply one chapter in an epic novel with countless chapters. And he says, verse 10, God will himself restore you. And I don't know about you, but that encourages me. God himself will restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. He uses a couple different terms, but all basically saying the same thing. God will make you secure. secure. God will enable you to persevere. God will restore you when you are depleted. God will be your strength. God himself will be this for you. It's not that God's going to kind of in an impersonal way like plug you into some spiritual charging station like you would with an iPhone and just leave it in the corner of the room for a few hours. God himself will restore you. God himself will strengthen you. God himself will be present and real to you. And this is our hope. This is the gospel that we preach, that though we have sinned, and turn from God and really deserve judgment and wrath for that, God has been gracious and merciful and in love has forgiven us of our sins through faith in Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus came while we were sinners and died for us and demonstrated God's love for us and invited us to be reconciled to this God who loves us. And we can enjoy life with him both now and forever. And this is for you today. This is not an exclusive club. Really, this invitation is here for whoever would hear the gospel and respond in faith. This is an invitation for anyone to say, Jesus, I want to follow you. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life and guide me. 
And with that, we see Peter close the book in these last few verses. He says, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly. Some of you are like, briefly? We've been doing this for months. I've written you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, which is referring to the church in Rome. So the church in Rome, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. That's how he ends the book. There's details in there that we could explore together. It's kind of a standard end to an ancient letter, to an epistle with greetings and wishes of peace and mentioning some few known associates that they would have in common. But I want to hone in briefly on verse 12. It says, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. This is the true grace of God. This letter that I've been writing to you has been to encourage you and remind you of the grace and love of God. And so we can together think back on the message of 1 Peter. If we had to boil it down and sum it up, what would we say it was about? Well, we would say it's about exile and that life in exile as we follow Jesus can be hard. It's going to be hard. It's going to be challenges, right? Just go back and read through this week, and I hope you will read through the whole book and see all the references to exile, to opposition, to challenges, to suffering. There's a lot of them. But life in exile is filled with hope. It's filled with hope. That's how he begins the book in chapter 1, remember? Verse 3 of chapter 1 says what? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a what? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So you're in exile now, but you have this living hope through Jesus Christ. You have an inheritance to look forward to as a part of the family of God that will never perish, spoil, or fade. And so there's good news here. We can have hope and be sustained by this hope as we do good in the world, in Jesus' name, as we continue to follow him in exile, representing him, loving people, and sharing the good news wherever we go. There's this great quote from Corey Ten Boom, and maybe you've heard before, we saw it in our Alpha course we've been going through. She said, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and you trust the engineer. Life in exile sometimes feels like you're on a train through a dark tunnel. But in that place, don't throw the ticket away. Don't jump off the train. We trust our mighty God who cares for us, who has all of history in his hands. One of the ways we celebrate who our God is, is by taking communion together. And so we're going to do that now. now the music's going to play. I'm going to say a short prayer here. We invite you to come and celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus through communion. The elements that we take, the bread and the cup, represent Jesus' broken body for us and his shed blood for us for the forgiveness 
of sins. And so we come to the table regularly as Christians to remember the sacrifice of Jesus, to remember God's love for us, and to meet with him in this special way. And so we practice an open table here, which means even if you're visiting, even if you're uh, not, not a member here or anything like that, uh, if you've put your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, you're invited to participate with us. We have gluten-free elements, so no need to worry there. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then you can come forward to one of the two stations up front. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you that you are our living hope. You are our Savior and King, and these elements remind us what you have done for us. You died for us. You've brought us forgiveness of sins through your death. But not only that, Lord, you rose again, so now we can have new life in you. So we come to the table to remember this, to celebrate you, and to fully commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.